Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 4, Sheltering in Place, of Local Folks Podcast, Episode 1. I'm Bob Madar, and this episode is going to be a bit different from past programs because I'm doing my best to thwart the transmission of coronavirus by staying home. And getting out and interviewing local folks is just not on the agenda, so to speak. So, I'm going to be talking about my journey to confronting my own racism and to coming to terms with how much I've benefited from the oppression of African Americans and other folks whose skin is darker than mine. And just why am I talking about this now? Well, given all that's happened in the United States over the last three months, I guess it just seems like a good thing to do at the moment. Maybe by talking about my struggles with racist thinking and acknowledging white privilege, I can be helpful to other folks who might be reflecting on their own racism. You know, for most of my life, I was sure there wasn't a racist bone in my body, and I likely would have been very offended if someone told me otherwise. Now, at the ripe old age of 72, I realize just how wrong I've been. A little bit about me and my background. I'm a card-carrying boomer. (laughs) I was born in 1947 and grew up in the 50s and 60s in a white working-class neighborhood in San Francisco. My parents were Roosevelt Democrats, working-class people who lived through the Depression and became lifelong Democrats because of the New Deal. My entire neighborhood was white, as were my elementary and junior high schools. My high school was a bit more diverse, but still predominantly white. Neither of my parents were white supremacists or overtly racist, but we had no African-American friends. And if my memory is correct, our only experience with black folks during my childhood came from watching weekly television episodes of Amos and Andy, a veritable smorgasbord of racist stereotypes. I remember my mom and dad were appalled when the white police sergeant who lived up the street mentioned that one of his favorite things to do on the job was to conk coons with his nightstick, but they kept their disapproval to themselves. I think my mom and dad were simply indifferent to the plight of African Americans and certainly didn't think that they were in any way complicit in their oppression. I also think mom and dad would have scoffed at the idea of white privilege. And in many ways, I shared the same attitudes as my parents. During the 1960s, I supported the Civil Rights Movement. But in many ways, my support was largely passive. And I certainly didn't think of myself as being especially privileged. For most of my adult life, uh, probably up until about the age of 50 or so, I really didn't come into contact with many people of African heritage. And aside from a stint working on a project with a group of indigenous people in British Columbia, I didn't spend much time with other people of color either. Almost all my friends and co-workers were white, as were all the people in the neighborhoods I lived in. I didn't question why everyone I associated with and lived near was white. In fact, I didn't think about it at all. It was just the way things were, and I accepted it. I paid a lot of lip service to supporting civil rights, And I certainly voted accordingly, but that was about it. In 1999, I quit teaching and started working as an independent educational consultant and contracted with several different organizations working to improve low-performing public schools 
in urban and rural school districts pretty much across the United States. For the first time in my life, many of the folks I worked with were African American. And as I got to know them, both as colleagues and friends, I began to realize that I wasn't as free from racist thinking as I once believed. At this point, I'd like to relate several different vignettes from those years that really helped me to understand my own racism and how much I've benefited from white privilege. You know, and, and finally, I think my own complicity in building and maintaining the system of racial oppression people of color have had to live under. Early in my career as a consultant, I worked in a large Midwestern school system for several years. It was my first experience with inner city schools, and I remember being shocked at how dilapidated and run down many of the schools were, to the point that one of the schools had to put out buckets in the halls to catch water from roof leaks when it rained. The majority of students were African American. I remember once while I was visiting a classroom, a young man looked at me and said, why should I take education seriously when they put me in a shithole like this? Uh, he was no dummy and was quite aware that he was getting cheated out of a good education because of where he lived. In my experience, schools that serve African-American students are, by and large, woefully underfunded, and the students know it. The suburban high school I taught in for 14 years was a palatial palace compared to the inner city schools I worked in as a consultant. A couple of years later, while working in another large urban school district, I visited a classroom during an advisory period where the students were engaged in a discussion about their career goals after they finished school. Before class, when the teacher told me about the day's lesson, I immediately thought, huh, they're all going to say that they want to be an NBA star or a rapper or something similar. And boy, was I wrong. One young woman said, I want to be a children's book author so I can write books to help kids in my community learn to read. A young man said, I want to be a parole officer so I can help people after they get out of prison. And another fellow said, I want to start a business so I can create jobs for people in my neighborhood. Out of the 16 or so students in the class, all but two had similar goals. Of the other two, one student wanted to play for the NBA and the other had no idea about what she wanted to do. But the rest wanted to make their community a better place to live. You know, I often wonder how many of those caring, articulate, bright, thoughtful young people were able to achieve their dreams, given the impediments like poor schools, poverty, and racism that stood in their way. As I mentioned earlier, I really didn't know many African Americans, aside from a couple of casual acquaintances when I was in college. But that all changed when I started consulting. And the black folks I worked with taught me a lot. I remember talking with a colleague and friend in Kansas City, Missouri, over dinner at his house one evening. He grew up in Mississippi, and his grandfather was lynched by a white mob when my friend was a young child. I still remember the look on his face when he told me about it. It was a raw wound, even though it happened 40 or so years previously. On another occasion, I was part of a team providing training to a group of math teachers at a school in Southern California. And one day, during lunch break, I heard my colleague, 
an expert in math instruction from Houston, Texas, talking with one of the participants who had previously lived in Texas before moving to California. It turned out that both of them were born in Mississippi and still had family there. As they chatted, the conversation drifted to a discussion of how vigilant they had to be when crossing East Texas and Louisiana by car when they traveled to visit their families. There were places you had to avoid as a black person because they were just too dangerous. And we're not talking about the Jim Crow South here. This happened in the 70s and the 80s. And finally, I will never forget something a good friend and colleague told me during a rather long car ride. We were just shooting the breeze to pass the time, and I related to her an interaction I'd had with a police officer when I was in college. I described the incident, and it was obvious that I was pretty forthright when talking to the officer. My colleague, who's African-American, listened to my story, thought for a couple of minutes, and then said something I've never forgotten. You know, one of the things about you white folks that just blows us away is the way you talk to cops. We would never talk to them like that. In fact, we tell our kids to always show their hands when stopped, never reach for anything in the glove box, and always speak calmly and with deference. These are just a few examples of the experiences I had while working as a consultant that really opened my eyes to my own issues with racism. My privileged status as a white person and the oppression African-Americans have experienced in the past and are still dealing with today. As a parent, I have never worried that my children would be brutalized or killed when stopped by the police. And as far as I remember, I never talked to them about how to act if they were stopped. I have never given a thought to my personal safety when choosing which route to take when I travel by car. And no one has ever questioned my right to stay anywhere I want to. The school I taught in and the schools my children attended are all located in a prosperous, predominantly white community and are well-funded institutions with excellent facilities and up-to-date equipment and technology. And no one in my family, as far as I know, has ever been murdered by a mob. Uh, although legend has it that my paternal grandfather's brother was shot during a card game somewhere in Montana. But probably the greatest service these and other experiences have performed for me is to make me aware of my own racism. As I said earlier, growing up, I didn't know any African-American folks at all. I was certainly exposed to negative stereotypes from TV shows like Amos and Andy and movies like Gone with the Wind. But I learned very little about their actual lives and what it's like to be oppressed and brutalized without recourse or justice. I never questioned why I didn't see any African Americans or other people of color in positions of power and authority. Why all the newscasters on TV were white. Why all my teachers were white, etc. I just accepted it. And if you asked me if I was a racist, I would have answered with a resounding no. What I finally realized is that racism is sneaky. It may not manifest itself overtly, but it definitely expresses itself in subtle, underhanded ways. I first became aware of this sneakiness a couple of years after I began my career as a consultant 
I was working in an inner-city high school and had a meeting with a research team at an Ivy League university located in the same city. As I was walking across campus to the meeting, I noticed a young African-American man, books under his arm, going into a building, and he must be an athlete, popped up in my consciousness. In the past, I probably would not have even noticed the thought, or if I did notice it, not question it in the least. This time, it was different. I realized this was an old, old prejudice based on the stereotypes I had learned as a kid, and that those stereotypes and biases were the foundation of the white privilege I enjoyed. I was aware that I saw plenty of white students as I walked, and I didn't need any explanation for their presence on campus whatsoever. I just assumed they belonged there. But the dark-skinned person? Hmm. There must be some reason other than his academic ability, like athletics or special admissions program, to explain how he came to be walking into a building with books under his arm. I guess the best way to describe it is that I began to shine the light of awareness on my own racism and privilege, acknowledging it, naming it, and understanding where it came from. Does that mean I no longer have such thoughts pop up in my consciousness? No, they still do. But I know them now, and they will never catch me unaware again. I've also discovered, you know, that they wither away under the clarity of awareness, and after a short time are replaced by thoughts of understanding, compassion, and empathy. But thoughts are not action, and it seems to me I have some work to do on that front. When it comes to politics, I'm a progressive and vote accordingly. But other than that, I've been pretty much a passive observer. Uh, you know, I have marched in a few protests in the past against racial injustice, but that's about it. And I need to do more, much more. First of all, I have to confront racism and its partner white privilege whenever and wherever they rear their ugly heads. In the past, I've often let comments from white friends or acquaintances pass rather than engage in what could be a difficult and uncomfortable conversation. Let's take one very common comment as an example. On numerous occasions, I have heard white friends say some version of, I think they, or he, or she, is playing the race card when referring to something an African American has said about the continuing oppression and injustice they face every day. A seemingly mild comment on the surface, but if we dig a bit deeper, it's just another manifestation of racism and white privilege. At its heart, playing the race card is code for those black people are just using past discrimination to take advantage of the system and get something they really don't deserve. Or they just see racism under every bed. They need to chill out and realize that that was in the past. Basically, it seems to me this is like white folks telling black folks they have nothing to be upset about because we live, according to white folks, in a post-racial society. You know, if that isn't a manifestation of white privilege and its associated underlying racism, then I don't know what is. The arrogance of white people like me telling black folks that they are overreacting and hypersensitive about race 
is astounding to me, and I will not let it or other similar comments pass the next time I hear them. But to effectively challenge these types of comments, I need to continue my education about white privilege, the legacy of segregation, and ongoing racial injustice. I started to do that, and I'll share some of the resources I found helpful at the end of this podcast. Second, I need to open my ears and heart, close my mouth, and listen respectfully and without judgment to African American voices about what it's like to live in a racist society and what needs to happen to eliminate racism and white privilege. They can teach me a lot if I will just listen to what they have to say. Third, I need to advocate for reparations. You know, a significant portion of the wealth I have comes from the labor of African Americans, either as slaves or as poorly paid workers. The brains, hands, and hard work of countless black folks have built a lot of this country, and white people like me continue to reap the benefits of their labor. I have no idea what a just settlement would look like or how a program of reparations could be organized, but there is no question in my mind that African-American folks have been and are being cheated out of the wealth they and their ancestors have produced. I benefit directly from that crime, and it's time for me to make it right. I owe black Americans a debt, and I want to repay it. Before we close, I'd like to offer you a few resources that have helped me better understand systemic racism in the United States and my privileged status as a white person. The first resource is an article by Taneshi Coates in the uh, June 2014 edition of the Atlantic Magazine titled The Case for Reparations. Several books have really been important for me. Uh, the first one is Slavery by Another Name, The Reenslavement of Black Americans from the Civil War to World War II by Douglas Blackman. The second is The Warmth of Other Suns, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration by Isabel Wilkerson. And the third is White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. And finally, I'd like to introduce you to um, an organization whose name is Challenging Racism. It's a nonprofit organization whose mission is to empower and inspire people to disrupt racism one compassionate conversation at a time. Uh, You can find Challenging Racism at uh, www. Uh, challengingracism.org. Well, everyone, thank you very much for listening, and I hope you'll return for the next episode of Season 4, which will air starting on October 1st. And in the meantime, stay safe and enjoy the coming of fall. Portland.